Check, check. All right. I said, all right. <laughs> That's always fun to try. Uh, before I forget, I want to give thanks to someone who is responsible not only for my haircut, but also for the fact that my tie actually matches my outfit. Amy, thank you so much for helping me with my appearance. Appreciate that. She cooks my food, too. Yeah, oh, yeah. I'm definitely keeping her. You're right. Anybody here, show of hands, anyone felt opposed in the last few weeks, few months? Anybody? Anybody felt opposed recently by forces, spiritual and or mental, social, physical opposition? You think? Just a little, maybe. I felt pretty opposed the last few weeks while I was writing this message about opposition. I'm not sure if that's God's sense of humor or what, but we'll go with it. If I ask you, OU or OSU, we would immediately be divided, right? If I ask mustard or mayonnaise, we would be further divided because there are some who would go with one or the other, some who would say both, and some who would say neither. And even in the camp of both, we would be divided because some would want more of one than the other. And let's not even mention politics or religious denominations. The way I see it, there are three kinds of people. There are those who can count and those who can't. And now you know which group I belong to. <laughs> All these divisions set us against each other in various degrees. And while I'm a big fan of amateur physical competition, there's a lot of vicious, ruthless ideological conflict in our world right now. But we wrestle not against flesh and blood. The real battle is spiritual. And here are five things that I think we should keep in mind. First is that we are in a war. The second is that we actually have a very valuable place in this war. The third, I'm going to go through some examples of how God's servants were opposed in Scripture. Fourth, some examples of how we are opposed today. And then last, for all of you moms, what to expect when you're expecting opposition. Thank you. So we're in a war. We have to start there. We don't like it, but we have to see it that way. Anything less is dishonest and dangerous. Because when you know about traps, they're not nearly as lethal. It's when you don't know they're there that they're really dangerous. Every parent breathes a sigh of relief when their child finally gets scared enough by something to be properly respectful. We don't want our children terrified and we don't want them paralyzed, but we do want them to be aware and use wisdom as they go out into the wide world. And notice what follows. If we expect this world to be heaven, to be a sort of Christian-y utopia, 
we will quickly grow disillusioned and frustrated and angry at the good God who made such a disappointing place and doesn't fix it for us. But if we expect this world to be a boot camp, to be training, to be a place designed by our loving God to make us uncomfortable in our sinful nature, to force us to see that we need a Savior, a place where we are expected to live with unbelievers and act and think differently than any of them can understand. Well, we might expect some pain, some suffering, some humiliation, some loss, some misunderstanding, some loneliness, some betrayal, some unfairness, wouldn't we? Our emotions cloud our view. When we feel that all is as it should be, faith is easy. When we're in want, hurt, when our flesh is under discipline, faith is harder. God seems meaner, confusing, distant. But feelings lie. We must remember the truth, no matter how our feelings respond. Sometimes we have to tell our feelings to sit down and shut up while we remind them what's what. So here's what's what. God was first. Satan was second. Satan rebelled and God threw him out. So Satan attacked what God loves most. God initiated a rescue plan in history. Satan opposed and still opposes this rescue plan. God will win at the end of history. And he wins in our lives all along the way. Satan's victories are small, temporary challenges to God's plan. But God can bring back the dead. He can grant the gift of repentance and turn the most zealous persecutors of his people into champions for his people. Nothing Satan does is more powerful than what God does. Since God allows us to join him and to have free will to contribute to this war effort, our decisions have consequences. God may reverse our failures, or he may allow them to stand and be used for creating greater victories in an unforeseen way. Either way, God wins by using our best efforts and our worst, as well as the enemy's efforts. Everything is used to serve God's purposes, willingly or not. Now, why are we opposed? The philosopher's question. Why? What's our place in the epic battle between God and evil? So, point number two, why we are opposed. We are opposed because God is opposed. And by the same person. The accuser, the beaten one, the loser, the deceiver, the one who mars but cannot make, the one who perverts but cannot cure, the one who promises but never delivers. He is everything wrong and evil, and he stands against the one who is everything right and good. Satan cannot beat God. Revelation chapter 20 and the book of Job chapters 1 and 3 attest to his inferior power. So he tries to hurt God by hurting what God loves. 
that would be us. For God so loved the world. Now, how can Satan hurt us the most? He can get us to focus on ourselves, to hate and forget God, to hate and forget each other, and to forget about him and this brutal war we're in. If Satan can convince us that we're on vacation, that he's not real, that our feelings and our reactions and our experiences are the most important parts of our life, then it's very easy to use a trial, a tragedy, a betrayal, and a loss to turn us against the God we claim to serve. God turns out to be more like a drill sergeant at times than like a butler. But if we're spoiled by our comforts, we won't appreciate a drill sergeant, will we? Use this pain and discomfort for my good? Where do you get off, God? I want what I want, dang it. Sounds like a three-year-old. I was in Mardell a while back, and I saw this beautifully framed print. They had lots of those things there. And it was that famous story about the footprints in the sand where the man's, uh, he's got this vision, and he sees in the sand on the beach two sets of footprints where God walks with him through life and all the different things that he goes through. And then he sees only one set of footprints after that, and he gets upset. He says, God, you left. Why is there only one set of footprints? Where did you go? God says, no, that's when I carried you. We need that. I saw a second part to this. The man keeps having this vision, and past the one set of footprints, he sees a set where there's that same set of footprints, but then there's all this kicked up sand and, and, and deep gouge marks, and, and there's this big mess all through these footprints like there was a fight. And he says, God, what happened there? God says, that's where I dragged you kicking and screaming. <laughs> Can I get an amen? <laughs> We've all been there. We have always been opposed because we have always been loved. God's love makes our enemy envious and afraid. So he seeks to steal, kill, and destroy what he cannot have. Only the end of this chapter in the story will bring an end to the opposition. So for our encouragement, let's look at a few examples of godly people who had opposition to contend with. Part three, how God's servants have been opposed. I got five examples here. First one is Hezekiah versus Sennacherib, found in 2 Kings 20, 2 Chronicles 30, and Isaiah 37. This is the story in which Sennacherib's uh, Assyrian army threatens to conquer Judah. They've already invaded. They've conquered a lot of other places, including all of Israel. They compare the God of the Israelites to the conquered deities of other countries as weak and powerless. They threaten Jerusalem's residents in their own language, and they promise certain destruction unless there is surrender. And they offer a life of ease and comfort if there is surrender. Does that sound familiar? 
I think we've heard that voice whispering in our ear before, haven't we? Hezekiah does the best thing he can do. He takes it all straight to God. He lays it all out. He contacts Isaiah and asks him for a response from the Lord. And with his words in his prayer, he honors God in direct opposition to the words the enemy has used to mock the same God. He acknowledges that his and his country's dependence is on God alone. And he asks for deliverance so that all the world will know that there's a God in Israel. And God delivers them in a spectacular way. It could only be done by God. Do you remember how he did it? He sends an angel, just one, as far as we know, into the Assyrian camp. And in one night, he wipes out 185,000 soldiers. I wish I could have seen the look on the faces of the survivors when I got up the next day. I'm sure it would have been worth remembering. Oddly enough, they decide to pack up and go home after that. So that's one example. Another one, you remember Jonathan, Saul's first son? He would have been king except for someone named David, who he befriends knowing that David will be taking his place. You don't see that kind of humility very often. But in this instance, in 1 Samuel chapter 14, he and his armor bearer get their dander up. And they decide to do something about it. Because again, invaders have occupied the land of God's people. The Philistines have come in. They've taken away all all of Israel's weapons except for the few weapons Saul and Jonathan happen to have. Jonathan is opposed to this idea. He and his armor bearer decide to go attack a Philistine garrison. And it was with the confidence that nothing can stop the Lord from saving. Not their own swords, not their own beefy muscles, but the Lord. Nothing can stop the Lord from saving, Jonathan said, whether by many or by few. They waited for God to confirm their desire, and he did. And so they cast all doubt aside and destroyed the garrison. It said that Jonathan cut them down and his armor bearer came behind him only to make sure they were dead. It led to a great victory for the whole nation. Victory over their opposition made possible by God alone. Can you begin to see why Jonathan was such a kindred spirit to David the giant killer? Third example, prophet Elisha is in a city that gets surrounded by the entire Aramean army. Again, invaders have threatened Israel's capital. They've surrounded it. They've cut off escape. And Elisha, much like Jesus in the boat during the storm, is unruffled, unperturbed, unbothered, unlike his servant, who's in despair about Israel's weakness compared to the apparent strength of the Arameans. Elisha prayed only for God to open his servant's eyes to see what Elisha already knew was there, a massive army of fiery horses and chariots that covered the hills outside the town and surrounded the Arameans. 
things were not as they seemed. Elisha's faith was in the unseen. The God who was still in charge, who already had a plan, and who was working it out. The Aramean invasion was actually used by God as a part of his plan to bring peace to Israel. Through invasion? Mm-hmm. If you read the story from 2 Kings chapter 6, verses 8 through 23, you read that God uses this to bring peace between the two kingdoms, and the Arameans don't invade after that. No one could see that yet, especially not the servant. All he saw was the army surrounding them. Servants' beliefs were directed only by what he could see. But faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things unseen. Next example. Jesus versus the religious leaders, which can be found in every gospel. In many places, Jesus directly confronts the beliefs and practices of the religious leaders of the Jews, which were in opposition to the intent and the messages of his father in the scriptures. When such beliefs were held, Jesus did not back away from the confrontation. He actually seemed to initiate conflict in many instances. Jesus knew well who his opponent was, how his opponents operated, and what effect his confrontations would cause. He knew how and why he would die, and he didn't shy away from his mission. He loved us too much to back off, too much to leave uncontested the lies that held his people in slavery. It makes me wonder how Jesus would have us confront lies in the era of social media. Instant worldwide viewing, thoughtless ranting, and an accusing attitude toward those of a different perspective. It's easy to find. What signs would Jesus want us to put in our yards? I think the first step is to make sure, very sure, that we are not part of the problem. Our attitudes are important. Beams and specks in the eye and all that. I think the next step is to make sure we aren't listening to lies or worthless ranting that stirs us to unnecessary conflict, that forgets kindness and undeserved mercy. And the third step is to focus our evangelistic efforts not online, but face-to-face, especially with those who know us already. Confusion and lies and accusations are of the enemy. So let's not help that nasty effort. Fifth example, Acts chapter 6 and 7 detail Stephen versus the Sanhedrin. Stephen was opposed by people with the same attitudes as those who contended with Jesus, envy and fear. No one could best the wisdom of the Holy Spirit in Stephen, so they did what Satan still does today. If you can't beat them, or distract them, or corrupt them, or intimidate them, kill them off and cheat if necessary. I included this one because Stephen pays the ultimate price for his faithfulness, boldness, and effectiveness. He is killed unjustly, unfairly, without evidence of law-breaking, without any recourse or rescue. 
And he maintains his determined position to the end. And then his last act was an act of mercy toward the angry, hostile, unreasonable, ungodly mob that lashed out at him from fear and envy, just like our Savior did on the cross. So God worked in very different ways for all of these followers that were found to be in conflict. But work he did. And he will work for us in our battles too. Let's look at some of the battles we face. Point four, how God's servants are opposed today. Focus versus distraction. Squirrel! You all familiar with the movie, is it, is it Up? Pixar movie Up about the house with the balloons that goes with. There are some characters in there, a bunch of dogs who get so easily distracted by squirrels. Every time there's a squirrel, they all go pointing towards squirrel. That goes on in our culture, maybe you've noticed. Our digital world trains us to be distracted and forgetful. Googling information is so convenient and the memory of our devices is so complete that we've forgotten how important it is to remember things like like names of children. We try so hard to get our children's names right because we chose the names and we like the names. <laughs> but <laughs> have you ever looked right at a child whom you've known their whole life and called them the wrong name? It happens all the time. Sometimes you go through three or four names before you get to the right name. Mm. And it, uh, kid, you. We forget where we park. Oh, wait. Right? Don't have to remember. Just be sure you go out the right door. You ever gone out the wrong level at the mall? That's, yeah. We forget speeches. We forget scriptures. We forget previous conversations. We begin to lose connection with context and our ability to evaluate right and wrong if we can't remember the truth. And our world does not help us remember the truth. Capitalism's a wonderful thing, but there's the ads. We have to have truth and advertising laws for a reason. We have to read the fine print for a reason. We have lawyers for those same reasons. It's not all truth out there. Remembering takes focus. We are not good at focusing. I watch people interrupt themselves all the time. Ever had a conversation with someone and you find yourself five minutes later on your phone, th three clicks away from what you intended to do this one real quick thing you were going to share with the, and the person's on their phone doing the same thing? I don't think it's supposed to be that way. We interrupt ourselves because we're usually trying to do too many things at the same time. Some people are better at this than others. I used to watch my mother fix supper, do laundry, talk on the phone with the radio on all at the same time. Somehow, she didn't burn the laundry 
And the dinner didn't overflow. But I can't do that. I have a hard enough time with just the laundry. I think, while I'm waiting for this web page to load, I'll click over here and do something else. How many times have you said to yourself, I'll just get on the computer real quick? Come on now. Computers are never real quick. They're not. They're not designed to be. Why do you think they have calendars on them? They're designed to suck you in your whole life right there on the screen so that you never have a good reason to leave. I hate calendars on computers. I have um, had students many times recently when I'm telling them something, they say to me, wait, 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 wait. I thought I was speaking English. I thought I was speaking slow enough. And I was. I've come to find out they're not talking to me. They're talking to something going on in here. Probably many things going on in here that I can't see. They're trying to calm down the noise in their head so they can listen to what I have to say. Where did the noise come from? Well, part of it's the fact that they're teenagers and there's nothing they can do about that. I mean, exercise and lots of sleep and less caffeine, but part of it is what we put in. Part of it is the voices we listen to the images that we watch. If you go back and watch commercials from the 70s, you're like, come on! Get done already, right? They're so much slower than the commercials we see today. Commercials we see today pack 30 images into five seconds. Don't tell me that doesn't mess with your ability to focus. Squirrel. Hmm. Waiting. Patience. Availability. Are lost arts because we do not practice them like we used to. Our affluent society makes survival easy and comfortable. Our technology makes all things less manual as long as they work perfectly. We think we are entitled to immediate service of all our whims. We are not. We are called to be that one person in line at customer service who is not in a hurry. We are called to be that polite person who actually seems to have time for a conversation. That friend who's willing to sacrifice for a heart-to-heart and then prays for you and then checks on you in a week. That's who we're supposed to be. That takes a connection to God and a focus on others that this world opposes. It's a surprise when we encounter this behavior and that makes it an opportunity. Our next opponent, trust versus control. I'm an oldest child. 
My wife is an oldest child. Both of her parents are oldest children, so my poor oldest daughter has it three generations. She handles it really well. Better than I did. Hmm. But with all of the things you can do on your phone to control your home, have you seen these commercials? You don't even have to have your phone. You can just speak to your little robot doohickey. Alexandria, Odessa, whatever her name is. Draw the drapes. <laughs> Turn on the TV to channel 47. Ding. Put the child to bed. I'm sorry, that is not what I'm programmed to do. You can get on your phone with your voice and make your house do things. There's something wrong with that. Maybe I've just watched too many movies where all those kinds of things get hacked and taken over by somebody, but I don't want my house to be able to do that. I love the seasons in Oklahoma. Yes, sometimes we have all of them weekly. Sometimes, sometimes we seem to skip past one or more of them in a given year, and they change so often that we get confused and frustrated planning what to wear or where to have an event. But in spite of the disadvantages, I believe we have a great spiritual advantage from our time in this state. We know that things in our circumstances and in our world will change and are beyond our control no matter what we plan. We get practice trusting God's timing, God's control, and God's results on a regular basis because we're helpless to control our weather. We get reminded hourly, almost constantly in flat places, of the nature of the Holy Spirit when we feel the wind brush against us or against our home or against our trees. You see the effects of the wind, but you can't see the wind. You can't tell where it comes from or where it's going. So it is with all who are born of the Spirit, Jesus said to Nicodemus. When I remember that the Holy Spirit is like the wind, it makes the storms and the gusts and the blustery days, the breezes on the hot days, the fierce north winds with Arctic temperatures so much more interesting to consider. As the wind blows both fiercely and gently, bringing relief and destruction, eliciting praise and cursing, so is the Holy Spirit in our lives. The seasons always seem to change just about the time I get really sick of the one I'm in. It's always such a relief to know that change is coming. I mean, I know people talk about how wonderful it is in Hawaii where it's 72 all year, but I don't know. I'm not sure I would enjoy it. Not the whole year. No matter how difficult or frustrating, circumstances are not permanent. Heaven and earth will pass away, but Jesus' words will not. And he doesn't change like the shadows, the seasons, or our feelings. God strikes a balance in our lives that is strange to us. He leads us to do things and say things and go places. We would never have chosen on our own, but it works. His plans work. 
no matter how crazy they seem to our wisdom that walks only by sight. When we refuse God's leading, we have to make things happen by ourselves. And it's exhausting to do so. We are so incapable even of the smallest tasks. Jesus reminded us that we cannot make a single hair white or black or make ourselves taller or any of the other silly things we think we have to make happen. Instead, God calls us to the one way of living we were actually designed for that has the peace we crave, the strength we need, the joyful energy we lack by chasing our tails in worry. That way is the way of trust, the way of seeming danger and risk that is actually far safer, far simpler, and far more life-giving than anything we can find or invent. Another of our opponents is harassment. When Jesus saw the crowds, he had compassion on them, for they were harassed and weary like sheep without a shepherd. Harassment is wearying. It takes energy and time to resist it, to contend with it, even to ignore it. Our enemy has somewhat successfully created a world that seeks to harass us as we follow Christ. Our pop culture harasses our morals and beliefs. Our machines harass our patience. Our schedules harass our focus. Our flesh harasses our spirit. And Jesus gives us his peace. Come to me, he says, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. You will find rest for your souls. My peace I leave with you. My peace. I give to you, and not as the world gives do I give to you. Those are comforting words. When God gives a blessing, he adds no trouble to it. When the sheep walk with the shepherd, nothing can harm them or startle them for long. His rod and his staff are comforting in the wilderness. The shepherd protects his sheep. Nothing can snatch them away from him. Paul was persuaded that nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. Nothing. Jesus said nothing and no one could take his sheep from him, ever. We're admonished in many places that followers of Christ will be persecuted, will have trouble, will stumble, etc. But that we need not be stopped, defeated, overcome, ruined, or captured by these opposing forces. God himself is with us, in us now. And it greater is he in us than he that is in the world. That is security. And moth and rust cannot degrade it. Thieves cannot break into it or steal it. And our enemy will not overcome or hinder its source. Simply safe, ADT, guardian systems, got nothing on our shepherd. As long as we keep in step with the Spirit, listening to the shepherd's voice, fixing our eyes on him, we will not be shaken. How could we be? last opponent I'm going to mention is comfort and pleasure. I like what John Eldridge has said about giving into temptation. It's a transaction in which you give away your strength for something that harms you. Remember Samson? Perfect picture of that. He lost his strength because he gave into his flesh. You will always live to regret giving in, giving up, or giving out when you could have held on just a little longer. When we focus on God 
and expect his strength to see us through, leave the timing and results to him, holding on is much more doable. When we focus on how we feel and what we are able to do or feel able to do, we get overwhelmed and despairing so quickly. Feelings love to be taken seriously for the noise they make. But at best, their connection to the truth is inconsistent. Better to expect a little discomfort as God brings us to triumph than to let our insatiable flesh set the expectations for our situation. Our flesh always votes for giving away our strength. So those are some of the opponents we face. Here's what we should remember as we plan to face them. What to expect when you're expecting opposition. Plan on exerting effort. Plan on being uncomfortable. Plan on fighting to maintaining the will to finish. Plan on the world, the flesh, and the devil doing all they can to turn you aside, trip you up, and make you give up in despair or exhaustion. To help you rationalize doing less and to intimidate you into despair. That's the bad news. Now here's the good news. Plan on God doing something unexpected on your behalf. Plan on finding friends you didn't know were there to help you. Plan on your life being changed forever and being grateful that it was. Plan on learning something new about your world, yourself, and your God. Plan on kindness diffusing and confusing some of those who serve the opposition. Plan to take the determined long-term perspective and not to focus on the wind and the waves of the moment. Plan on wind and waves, but expect Jesus either to help you sleep in the boat, as he does, or walk on the water, as he does, or walk across on dry ground, or get tossed overboard and swallowed by a fish, or immediately finding yourself at your destination after your Savior commands the elements to let you pass. Plan on something like this, but don't expect to be told which. Our God likes to surprise our enemy with defeat as much as he likes to surprise us with victory. And he reminds us we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against spiritual forces of wickedness who have taken men captive to do their will. So we pray for the gift of repentance for others, the gift of mercy for us, that as we are mistreated, maligned, and misunderstood, we may bless and forgive and hold no grudges. For we remember all that God has forgiven on our behalf. We must not be the servant Jesus spoke of who tried to choke the hundred denarii out of his fellow servant when his master had forgiven him 60 million times as much. And they will know we are Christians by our love, not just for one another, but for our enemies. It's also important to see opposition as an opportunity. God may work miraculously on our behalf to overcome what opposes us. God may work miraculously inside our hearts to give us compassion on those who serve the opposition. And a door to minister to them and help them see the light may open. God may help us escape, stay under the radar, keep doing the work we know he wants us to do, defiant and discreet, while God blinds the eyes of the opposition. 
God may allow us to suffer even to death. And then use our sacrifice to stoke the fires of devotion in those we leave behind. God wins in all these ways. That is certain. The enemy only wins if we give up and actually believe what the enemy says is true. And our enemy never speaks the truth correctly. Why would we believe anything he says? Unless we didn't realize it was him talking. That is the danger in this wonderful country that we call home. It's easy to ignore the war, or at least it was. Perhaps that is one reason that God uses times like this to shake us awake, to sharpen our vigilance, to remind us of the importance of the work to which he calls us. Lewis says in Mere Christianity that comfort is the one thing you cannot get by looking for it. If you pursue Christ, you will suffer, but you will find comfort at last. If you pursue comfort, you will never quite grasp it and find only emptiness and suffering in the end. Opposition? Romans 8.33 says, It is God who justifies. What can man do to me? Psalm 118.6, Psalm 56.4, and 56.11. If God is for us, who can be against us? Romans 8 again. Every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess Christ as Lord, swear allegiance, and give praise to God the Father. Romans 14.11, Philippians 2.10, and Isaiah 45.23. Yes, we are opposed. Temporarily and ineffectively. If you listen, you can hear the Oklahoma wind blowing. 